Good morning, and thanks for welcoming this complete stranger into your midst. Um, and I'm praying that we'll be a little less strange by the end of the weekend. To give this some context, I am currently a minister in the Anglican Diocese of Sydney. Um, I grew up in the Reformed Church, uh, which is a lot like a Prezi church, except it has a Dutch accent instead of a Scottish accent. Um, now, it's rumoured that the similarity between those two cultures goes back a long, long way. I've heard that copper wire was invented by a Dutchman and a Scotsman arguing over a penny. There's some similarities there. Okay. That's about as good as it gets. Um, now, I don't actually, because I don't know you very well, I don't want to presume what you think, and hopefully all of that will come out in conversation when you talk with each other. Um, so I'll talk a bit from my own background, and uh, one of our biggest areas of awkwardness and struggle was the question of unity. Um, it's, it's just, it's always been one of those difficult subjects. I mean, for us, it was hard to even contemplate unity when so much of our energy went into pointing out what was wrong with everybody else. Um, I don't know if that's been your experience at all, but it was certainly mine. I could go through all the list of different groups of Christians and tell you what was wrong with all of them, including the Anglicans and the Presbyterians. And I, and I remember a... Um, a joke uh, that cut really close to the bone. Um, uh, it was basically if you have two reformers, you have a church. And if you have three reformers, you have a synod. And if you have four reformers, you have a split. Um, it was just what we did. So if you can relate to that at all, this little exercise is either going to be a lot of fun because we like a challenge or it's going to be a lot of frustration because we don't like a challenge. I don't mind either way. Um, now, the, the, I would argue that the concept of unity is basically about three different things. First, it's about what holds us up as a foundational thing. Secondly, it's about what holds us together, what gives us our sense of community with each other. And C, it's about what we are, our identity or how others will recognise us. So there's three different aspects to the whole idea of unity. Um, and we're going to do this in three sections. So today, this morning, this afternoon, tomorrow. Um, today is about what unity is not. Um, to, this afternoon is going to be what unity is. And tomorrow it's going to be what unity looks like, although there's, I've, I've realised as I've put it all together that there's an awful lot of overlap. Um, now, to be fair, I'm hoping for two things to happen this weekend. First of all, this needs to be confronted. Um, our buttons need to be pushed. The only times I've ever grown in my Christian life is when I've been hammered one way or another. Um, but also, on top of that, I want us to find some genuine delight in unity. This unity is a good thing. It's not a horrible thing. It's a, um, but we'll start by looking at the wrong answers. 
Um, what unity is not. And I, and I can sum that up with one simple phrase. Our unity is not about us. Now, that might sound a bit weird because we're actually talking about our unity. You know, so how can it not be about us? Uh, we're the ones who are supposed to be unificated. But I think it's a very important point. See, because we're human, we easily think like humans, which is terrible. Um, we easily think that our unity hinges on what we are like, what we do, and what we hold true. And that's what locks us together. Uh, you know, when we get those boxes ticked, then we think we can be happy together. Now, the challenge is that those things are actually reasons for division rather than reasons for unity. Right? We use those things to actually push other people away rather than to draw others or each other in. So true unity, I would argue, is more than just ticking boxes and avoiding mistakes. True unity is about keeping our relationships alive and strong. That's where you get unity. So that's why our reading was from 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, Paul was writing to a church that was losing its unity. They, they were breaking up like the Beatles. Um, okay. <laughs> Mental note, find more age-appropriate pop culture references. Um, <laughs> okay, one or two of you got that. Fair enough. Anyway, the, the thing that was happening in Corinth, <laughs> the thing that was happening in Corinth was that people were arguing about which famous teacher they would, should be following. Uh, I don't need to say much here because Dave handled it all earlier. Um, but the way Paul wrote makes it sound very much like a typical AGM, you know, where you get seven different opinions presented by four people. Um, but what happens so easily uh, is that we get sidetracked over, you know, sidetracked by, by debates and arguments over people and ideas and achievements. Our focus goes to those things. And it's, I think it's a lot like the infamous gunpowder cake, which is a recipe for disaster. That's it. That was worse, wasn't it? Come on. I thought of that all by myself. Um, when our focus is on people, we can expect quarrelling, arguments, and division. That's what happens when we focus on people. I mean, let's face it, if we take our eyes off Jesus and look at the people around us, we actually will end up with more reasons to fight than to hug. If it wasn't for Jesus holding us together, we would probably shoot each other, which is a little scary because you're country folk and you probably have the, the equipment to do that. Um, so, so if, if our evangelism program includes messages like, come and join us because we are wonderful people and our minister is fantastic, then we've got a problem. And I'm sorry if you've just printed that message. To just 
<laughs> it's just been published. Um, I mean, really, the only reason that we turn to Jesus at all is because we're not wonderful and we admit that we need forgiveness, true? That's it. And I'm yet to find a minister who doesn't make mistakes. Sorry, Dave, but... <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> See? <laughs> I mean, look at, look at how the world watches us, and it's getting darker as it goes on. Look at how the world watches us. Every time another Christian makes a mistake, the vultures come in to, to tear the whole church apart, don't they? Because they think it's about us. That's the message they get. That's the message they've been getting for centuries. They think it's about us. And because of that, they are on the hunt for our hypocrisy. So our unity is not allowed to be tied to people. It's not allowed to be tied to us or to our leaders because that's going to be our downfall. Our unity also can't be tied to what, uh, what we, I would call our systems, the way we do church. And I find this one pretty confronting. Um, we Christians have always argued and divided over our processes and our structures. Um, where we draw the line, you know, where do we draw the line on what's acceptable and what isn't? What should we be doing as church and what shouldn't we be doing? church i mean should we be a hierarchy you know like the roaming catholics or the angry cans um or should we be a democracy like the press buttons um is it perhaps better to have a famous leader that's you know known by everybody um and that, and that everybody follows that particular leader for centuries, we Christians have argued and fought over which structure is the most biblical. Um, and for centuries, each different group has maintained the conviction that they alone have the high ground. And it's really awkward to watch. And I've, I've actually danced between the two now, which is weird. Um, the thing is that what's interesting is that each system carries the risk of putting all the focus and even all the power into what we do. That's how we end up with pompous leaders in silly clothes or churches that lose their direction because they had a democratic vote. And we've seen that happening. And we can see Paul's warning that, that he didn't want them to follow him. He said, don't follow me. I need Jesus. I'm lost. Otherwise, you know, don't follow me. Um, the last thing he wanted was a mega church called Paul Song. He didn't want that. I mean, I know. I mean, don't get me wrong. We all love a good ego run. I do. Um, but we can't build a church around that. Structures and systems get messy and sometimes very, very wrong. And we need something stronger and something that's going to continually challenge the way we do. 
And, th and then there's the, that temptation to think that we should look for our unity in the things that we do, in the, in the pattern or the things that we don't do. Um, it shows up in, in patterns that we don't like changing or rules that we don't like breaking. Um, now, I haven't always been an Anglican, but I've learned the expression where someone will say, that's just not Anglican, whatever that means. Um, I had it when I was um, in the Reformed Church. You know, someone nearly throttled me because I said something that wasn't Reformed. You know, <laughs> um, I think I said that there were Christians in other churches. Um, <laughs> and his old guy nearly left the table at me and said, that's not Reformed. <laughs> okay. Um, I remember having a, a good friend in ministry once say at a synod meeting, at a national synod meeting, he said that we needed to have unity through uniformity. Ooh, yeah. It was the idea that you, you, you know, you know you're with your people if they do the same things that you're used to doing. And you go, oh, yeah, it feels like home. And, but I remember the first time I went to an Anglican church. It was weird because everybody knew what to say except me. And they're all saying the right thing at the right time. And they knew, you know, in this silly little prayer book, you know, they knew to jump from page 51 to 73 and then back to 24. Honestly, I had no idea. And it was like a secret exclusive club. And I wondered how I could have any sort of unity with them. Now I am one. It's really weird. Now the thing that really struck me at the time was that I could only belong if I fitted the pattern. Um, there was a, a church in Tasmania where I, uh, I became a minister there. It was my first parish, my first church, Reformed Church in Tasmania, and there was one uh, young woman who had joined the church a little before I came along. And... Um, and she had just become a Christian, um, and she joined this church. And I, I thought, I said, "How did you go? Because you know these are weird people." And she said it was really strange because what they did was very different from what I was used to, or even what she wanted to express. She wanted to put in some enthusiasm and some delight and happiness. And uh, we were the frozen chosen, and. Um, <laughs> And so she actually said to me, she said she deliberately had to adapt herself to their way of doing things in order to belong. Otherwise, she couldn't have stayed, which is really interesting. There wasn't a sense of, you know, you're one of us even though, you know, you're different. That didn't matter. That didn't, that didn't happen. In order for her to be one of them, she needed to change her to suit their pattern, which really disturbed me. You see, if that's what we build our unity on, we really have a problem, don't we? And so I find that confronting. Um, it means that we can only have that sense of unity if we have sameness. And not only is that boring, it's wrong. And I think it pays to be a bit honest here. I have to be. I mean, let's, let's acknowledge the things that we do simply because that's what we like. 
or that's what suits us, you know, like singing songs from the 70s or preferring old Bible translations or saying, and also with you. Yeah, they're just things that people have developed over time because that's what they like. Or someone thought it was a good idea at the time and we've just kept doing it. And nobody knows why. Why do they wear funny hats? Honestly. Um, now, the elephant in the room is our theology. Our unity does not depend on what we agree on. This one's awkward because what we believe actually does matter, doesn't it? Of course it does. If we don't care about our theology, we can end up allowing each other to believe things that lead us further away from God rather than closer to him. And I've watched churches doing that. So it really does matter that we teach good biblical truth. And I hope Dave is doing that for you. I, I saw some nods, Dave, so just yeah, be encouraged. Um, it really does matter that we teach a message of salvation through faith in Christ alone. We've got to keep doing that because that's the bottom line. here. Uh, and that, in the end, that's going to be the main point over the whole weekend. But we can develop a mindset of salvation by correct theology. Uh, that's what I had. I mean, I had it in minister school. Um, we students, especially when we're in year two, we used to bring imaginary Calvinometers to church to judge each preacher's correctness. I mean, I was 19 for Pete's sake, but I still did that. So we built this thinking that if I belonged to a church that taught all the right things, then I was fine. If I could memorize the creeds and confessions, and we did have to do that, uh, and if I knew all the right answers, then I was included. So if I knew my stuff, I was fine. But there's a difference between saying that we believe something and actually believing it, isn't there? There's a difference between unified theology and true unity. And the difference is all about whether or not the relationship is real. I mean, you, you can get married with the best wedding vows ever. And you can get married with an understanding of each other, a knowledge of each other that's better than anybody else could ever know. But if you don't actually love each other and commit yourselves to each other and be willing to die for each other, it's not a marriage, is it? You can have the best theology in the world. But if you're not actually right with God through Jesus, it's just a bunch of words. Paul hammered one of the big arguing points that Christians have been doing for years, uh, baptism. So he, he pulled out that chestnut. Churches have divided over this and they're still arguing about it. But Paul said that this is not a hill worth dying on, which I find quite fascinating. The only thing that matters, according to Paul, is the cross of Christ and the salvation we get through him. I mean, baptism only points to that anyway. So if we're going to talk about our unity, 
we actually need to focus on what gives us the unity rather than what gives us more excuses for division. I think it's like marriage, right? So we know, this one of my hobby horses, um, we know that adultery is grounds for divorce, right? We know that. So we should be able to keep our marriages together simply by avoiding adultery. You know, I see, I like that. There's a shake of the head there, right? However, Jesus said that a lustful thought is adultery. So then every single marriage has genuine grounds for divorce, don't we? If, if we're honest. If we're denying that, then we're not honest, I would, I would say, because our heads go there. If we base our unity on what we do or what we like or what we agree on, we're setting ourselves up for a fall because they're all reasons for division. But if we focus on the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that we get in Christ, that's where we put our focus, then our grounds for division disappear, don't they? Don't hang your hat on a broken hook. Hang it on Jesus. <laughs>